This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Like a lot of families, we've gotten in the habit at my house in recent years of trying recipes from the New York Times cooking website, and we've noticed that many of our favorites are written by Melissa Clark. Over time, many other friends have said the same thing. Hers are just reliably good. This shouldn't be a big surprise, really. Clark is the author of more than 40 cookbooks and winner of multiple James Beard and International Association of Culinary Professionals Awards. She writes a weekly column for The Times called A Good Appetite, and she regularly produces cooking videos. So we are delighted to have Melissa Clark on the show as she publishes her latest cookbook, Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. Melissa Clark, welcome to Fresh Air. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you. Um, This cookbook has everything from meatball subs to peanut-crusted tofu. Um, What gave you the idea for this one-pan cookbook? Well, you know, I've always been interested in making my recipes accessible and simple for home cooks. I mean, because that's how I cook. I just love to, you know, cook my meal, to get into the chopping. But the one thing that I don't love is the cleanup. So as part of the way I always cook, I've always been figuring out how can I streamline? How can I make this recipe easier? How do I eliminate a bowl or do everything on one sheet pan or in one skillet? And I've been doing this over the years. But for this book, I decided, you know what? I know I've been kind of doing this. I want to set a challenge and I want to do one pot only. I mean, one pot meals, they are classics, you know, but we mostly think of one pots as being a stew or a soup. And I wanted to just do it across the board. Give me one vessel, a sheet pan, one of my favorites, um, an instant pot, another favorite, a skillet, a casserole dish. How do I do a meal that would normally take two or three pans and do it in one? Right, and that's how the book is organized, is by the kind of pot you get. I mean, we should note that, that there will be a few other dishes here. Sometimes you cook something in the, the pan, and then you put it in a plate, and then do other things. But really only one cooking pot when it's over. The first section of recipes is stuff that you do in a sheet pan. You feel sheet pans are kind of underappreciated, don't you? <laughs> As soon as I saw a recipe, and I don't remember where I saw the recipe for the sheet pan, you know, meal, but I thought, okay, this is exactly how I want to cook because not only is it, you know, a one pan meal, meaning less cleanup, I also get to put everything on the pan, I get to put it in the oven, and then I can forget about it until it's done and I can do other things. And I love to just, you know, multitask. So my dinner is cooking in the oven and I can be making my salad, I could be setting the table, I could be calling my mom, I could be, you know, answering those last emails. So I started doing those meals. And once you start cooking on a sheet pan, it's really fun to be able to to puzzle it out. Okay, I have, you know, I've got my chicken and I've got my potatoes and maybe I have some spinach. How do I put them on a sheet pan in a way that everything comes out at the same time? And this has just been my obsession for the past, I'd say, I think maybe about 10 years I started really getting into it. You want to pick a favorite recipe and tell us about it? Can I just tell you about one that I'm really excited yeah. about right yeah, it now? It doesn't have okay. to be the favorite, just one you feel like. Yeah. <laughs> this is one. The, the reason I love this recipe is because I feel like it's a constant work in progress. So the first recipe that I published for harissa chicken with potatoes um, was in the New York Times. And this was you take sliced potatoes, you marinate the potatoes and the chicken with a harissa paste, some olive oil, garlic. Um, you know, there's cumin in there. It's such a simple marinade. And you throw it on the sheet pan. And then I finished it with a little bit of yogurt sauce. So that was recipe number one. Then I published it again in my cookbook dinner, Changing the Game. And I changed it up a little bit. And I made it a little bit easier. And I, I made sure the 
potatoes were a little bit more crisp by, you know, changing the timing. And I changed the garnish a little bit and added more herbs. So that was version number two. The version that I am obsessed with right now is in um, Dinner in One, and it is sheet pan potatoes with harissa and cauliflower instead of chicken. And so it's meatless, but it's still a full meal. And what makes this so exciting to me is that when you, you know, roast cauliflower at high heat, those little crevices get really crunchy and brown. And to me, they remind me of chicken skin. So I have the same flavorings. I have that harissa paste. I'm finishing it with the yogurt and the herbs. I've got those wonderful potatoes. But I have that texture of the chicken, but it's completely vegetarian. So this is like, this is just my obsession of the moment. All right, good. Um, So I want to talk about your life, your work routine. I mean, you are a busy woman. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you're writing this column and you're constantly uh, publishing new recipes that appear in the newsletter that people can get from the New York Times cooking website. And then you've got, you know, the, the videos that you do. Uh, you know, we all have quotas in our work, some more formal than others. I mean, at Fresh Air, we've got to come up with five quality interviews a week. Um, how many new recipes do you feel like you need to come up with per, I don't know, week, month? How's it, how's it measured? Yeah, so that's um well so just for my column alone it is you know 52 recipes a year at least that's the minimum. Um often there's more because I might do a column that has two or three recipes. Um so that's like the say that's the minimum of about 60 recipes right there. Then there's always extra recipes thrown in because I might um report on a story that needs to have a few recipes. So let's just add a couple more there. So let's say we're up to 65 a year. So 65 recipes a year when I'm not writing a cookbook. But here's the thing. I'm always writing a cookbook on the side. So (laughs) then I need to come up with, say, another 50 recipes a year. So we're talking well over 100 recipes a year. Do you ever wonder if you'll run out of ideas? No, because think about every meal you've ever had, right? I mean, there's always a different way to do it. There's always a slight variation that makes it a whole new meal. Um, I love playing with my old recipes and changing them. I love playing with new things. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person where if I go to the market and I see an ingredient I've never seen before or I've never used before, I will buy it and take it home and figure it out. And luckily, there is an entire internet to tell me what to do with something I don't know what to do with. So for me, the fun of my work is figuring out how to put tastes together and how to come up with new things. It's just, uh, I don't know, I think about it all the time, too. You know, it's not even when I'm working, you know, I'll just be... And walking down the street, you'll just think, gosh, you know, what would it be like if I took, say, um, roasted apples and I paired it with salmon? Has What would that be like? Would that be too sweet? Would that be good? How do I make the apples a little bit sour? You know, it's like I'm already starting to think about a recipe just because I've passed, you know, a pile of apples, you know, in the supermarket window or something. So I, I, I've read that you cook pretty much at home, right? That's where you do your work. Um, and that you have a recipe tester who comes into the house some days. What does the tester do? Okay, so I have someone who comes in once a week. And um, all of the recipes that I create for publication, they start with something that I've cooked at home. So say that I'm making dinner for my family and we're having um, we're having a roasted a whole roasted fish. And I've put, you know, lemon and I've put herbs in the middle. And I think this would be a really good simple recipe, whole roasted trout with lemon and herbs. Let's have that for a recipe for the times. And I'll cook it for dinner and then I'll write down what I do. And one really important part of my process is I have a a notebook in the kitchen. And because if I don't write it down while I'm cooking, I will absolutely forget it. By the time dinner is over and I've had my wine and I've cleaned up everything, I don't remember exactly what I've done. So you have to have that notebook in the kitchen. 
I take those notes if the dish was good, if it came out well, and then I type them into a recipe. So I already have the starting point. And then when the recipe tester, um, right now I'm working with a wonderful woman named Sophia. When Sophia comes over, she and I look over the recipe. We're like, okay, here's where to start. And she's going to cook it. And at the same time, we're going to be talking about it. Like, hey, you know those herbs? Like, what if we did... um, Instead of just doing the simple herbs, what if we did it a little bit, you know, um, more, just a little bit more sophisticated and we made a chimichurri, right? And and we added lime to the chimichurri. And so the recipe is evolving. And so it starts off as dinner. It becomes this movable thing. And then we come up at the end of the day, we've got this recipe that we think is pretty good. And then the question is, well, how do we make it better? And so we do it again or we'll do it the next time she comes and we'll we'll say, well, okay, what if we – did what if we just increase the oven temperature by 25 degrees just to make the skin a little crispy? Or what if we added just a little bit of um, lemon along with the lime? Does that make it, you know, a little bit rounder in the citrus flavors of the chimichurri? And the way that we know a recipe is done is when we have cooked all day long, we've been eating all day long, but we're standing in front of that dish of food and we just can't stop eating. Then we know the recipe is done. And that could take, you know, we could it could take as little as two times testing it. Or sometimes it can take like six or seven. Um, for desserts, it often will take like 10 because desserts are really hard <laughs> and you have to just change one thing at a time. So for a baked good or a custard or an ice cream, it's a little more involved. And then once the recipe is exactly where we think it, if we think it's perfect, then sometimes I will send that out to another professional tester who tests in her own home. And that way we see, well, you know, is her stove different? Um, are her ingredients different? And we'll get her feedback. Um, so it really depends. But for the most part, it is um, between two and, say, six tests. So, you, so do you do several iterations in a day? Um, you make it, make if, it again, make it, make it if, again? Sometimes, but you know, sometimes it's better not to because we're kind of sick of those flavors. We're like, ugh, let's not. No, we can't eat more fish. We got to, we got to move on to the pumpkin custard, or you know, it's like here we go. We got to go to the, we got to do the pasta now or the macaroni and cheese. We like to mix it up, and that way, also another thing is we always have a lot of leftovers at the end of the day. So it's good if they're not just like six plates of trout. You, you know. Um my wife and I got your cookbook last week. We immediately said we got to try one, and we cooked the farro with crispy spiced chickpeas and tomatoes and leeks, uh, and it was really delicious. And when you look at the page, there's quite a bit of text there. Um, and it, you know, and one of the things my wife said that she likes about your recipes is that you are very specific about. It. You know, it's not just cook it over medium high heat for ten minutes. It's like wait till it looks like this, or tastes like this, or feels like this. Is that something that you've kind of learned over time that you need to do? Yes, I, you know, it's funny. It's like walking the line. I always, I want the recipes. I want you to open the book and look at a recipe and think I can make that. That's simple. So I don't want it to be too cluttered. I want to be concise. But at the same time, I want to give you and your wife enough information to make the recipe so that it'll come out delicious. So it's always this like, what, what, how do I edit it? How do I make it shorter, 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 but then with enough detail to make it absolutely foolproof, no matter what? Like, even if you skip a step, like you're reading quickly, you're still going to be able to figure it out. So that's, that's always walking the line. And you know, the thing about it is I change the way I write recipes. The way I write recipes now is different from a few years ago because I, I keep learning. I keep learning what people need to know, what they want to know, and how they want recipes to be written. Yeah, I was going to ask, can you think of an occasion where 
people cooked stuff and you realized, oh, boy, I wasn't clear enough about this. <laughs> totally. That happens all the time. And the biggest thing is salt. How do I tell people who use different kinds of salt all across the country, all across the world, how much salt to add to a dish? I'm using a particular brand. I love Diamond Crystal salt. Um, why do I love it? I'm used to it. I feel like the salt that you love is the salt you're used to. I can pick it up and I know exactly how much is in my pinch. And um, however, Morton's kosher salt, which is a lot easier to get in different parts of the country, is a lot heavier. So when I say a teaspoon of kosher salt, if you're using Morton's, it's going to come out way too salty. So I, do I tell you to buy a particular brand? That's annoying. You don't want to have to go out and look for salt, a salt brand that you can't easily buy. Or do I say, well, if you're using Morton's, use this much. And if you're using Diamond Crystal, use this much. That's also annoying because that's too much text on the page. And what if you're using fine sea salt? So this is like a work in progress for me, but it's something that I obsess over. I think about, I talk to people about, and I'm still trying to come up with the right combination of giving enough information so that I make sure that you don't oversalt your dish, but also making sure that the thing in your pan is flavorful and it tastes alive. I have to tell you about a favorite dish of mine of yours. This is the um, – it's ginger scallion chicken, which I've made so many times. I think of it as my, my signature dish. Um, I love that. Know. I love that you think of that way. That's my, that's my well, goal. It's just that good. And I, I'll just briefly describe it. it. It's a chicken dish. It's cooked in a wok. You begin by you know cooking the, the chicken quickly, like three to five minutes till it's not pink anymore, with some kosher salt. But before you do that, you take a couple of scallions and you, sl- you, you quarter them lengthwise and then cut them into like – one and a half inch squares, and you separate the white scallions of the scallions from the green ones. So you, you cook the chicken, you put it on a plate, and then you, you take the green ends of the scallions fresh, put them on top of the chicken along with a cup of chopped cilantro, set it aside. Then you take some oil and you put the ginger in. It's three tablespoons of ginger, and you specify that you cut that ginger into little matchsticks about an inch long. So that's what I do, and I do that. <laughs> You get those golden brown. Then you put in the white uh, scallions and some soy sauce and a pinch of sugar. You cook it. You pour that over the chicken that already has the cilantro and green scallions. And it is so good. It is just so good. But as I've done this, I thought, now how did she figure this, the order of things? This goes on fresh. That doesn't. You know, the ginger in matchsticks. This is the kind of thing you do with different iterations again and again? Yeah, well, so that actually that recipe is actually a a, um, a recipe that I got from an, a former recipe tester of mine. Um, it was her mother's recipe, and um, so this is a, it's it's, a, it's actually a pretty classic Chinese dish um, for the and so the matchsticks are classic. And what's great about this dish is that I wouldn't have thought to do matchsticks for the ginger because to me matchsticks for ginger like you really need a reason. I need a reason to tell you to take the time to cut those little <laughs> ginger slices because it's not easy. It takes time, right? The payoff needs to be big. So uh, the, part of my job is, is there enough reward at the end to make it satisfying that if you're going to cut those little matchsticks, there's a reason. And there is a reason, right? Because when you get them, they're chewy, they're crispy. They add the right amount of ginger flavor. Um, and the right texture. Because, you know, if you grate ginger really finely, it adds a ton of flavor. It's very intense. But if you cut it into matchsticks, it's much milder. So you can use more so then you can have that texture of the ginger as well. So it's really very important to do them. And I wouldn't tell you to. I mean, I don't like fussy I don't like fussy recipes. I don't like fussy instructions. And if I'm fussy, there is a really good reason for it. And you you named the perfect recipe. Like that is the that is the recipe that might have one fussy step and the payoff makes it worth it. 
Do you ever have a dish that you just can't get right and have to walk away from? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, I had, I had – in fact, I just had one. So, you know, we're working right now um, at the Times. We're doing Thanksgiving already. I know it's just October, but this is how – you know, this is how we have to do it. And I've been – I was having a trouble trying to do a um, – a pumpkin whipped cream. So I'm, we're going to be doing this butterscotch pumpkin custard. The custard is so good. You do it in a, a big, you know, um, gratin dish or a casserole dish. So you can just put this whole beautiful custard down at the table. And then on top, I really wanted to do a pumpkin whipped cream. And I'd say it worked 50% of the time. And I could not figure out why. The, I think that it had to do with the um, the variations in the different canned pumpkin brands, or maybe the even just the, um, the different canned pumpkins, the acidity of that particular can, or the amount of moisture in that particular can. And I just thought, you know what? I can't do this. I cannot give a recipe that is so unreliable. People would hate me because you want, you know, especially when you're cooking for Thanksgiving, it has to be 100%. So I ended up adding a little more pumpkin to the custard itself so there, there's more pumpkin presence in the pudding. And then I did regular whipped cream on top. And it is still delicious. It's not exactly the dish that I had, you know, pitched to my editor, but it is a much safer bet for everybody, you know, who's cooking Thanksgiving dinner. Um, all right. So but Melissa Clark's Kitchen, we have a tester coming in and you're, you know, doing dishes all day, hoping to get them just right. Um at the end of the day, uh, you got a lot of food. Where is it? Your family? Does do you split it up? Where does it go? Yeah, we split it up. So we have a kind of a crazy network of people who get the food, and <laughs> it's it's uh, we feed a lot of people, which is great. Um, well, first of all, my mother lives in Brooklyn, not too far from me, and unfortunately, she no longer cooks. So a lot of the food goes to her. Um, of course, my tester takes home. To her family, my tester has a grandmother in her 90s, so you know her grandma gets a lot of the food, and then just my family, my husband and my daughter, our neighbors. Our neighbors are often, you know, <laughs> the recipients of, hey, want a cake? Um, hey, got, you want some pumpkin custard? So it, it, it travels, it travels, but never more than a, you know a two block radius. So there are cooking days I, I've read and days where you write. I mean, you you've always been a writer, and writing is a big part of what you do. And I read that when, one of the things you do when you have a writing days is you spend time calling your sources, which kind of hit me. And I, I used to be a political reporter, and I would call sources for inside dope on what's going on all the time. What kind of people do you call for sources, and what kind of information do you get? Well, you know, a lot of what I do at the Times is reported work as well. So it's not so much that I'm calling people necessarily for recipes, although I absolutely do that. But Usually when I'm calling sources, um, I'll be calling people to report a story on, say, I did a big story on um, marijuana and oysters. So I was calling oyster farmers to talk about, um, you know, how their particular way of farming oysters affects the flavor. Or I did another story on kelp, on um, how kelp is one of the most sustainable foods you can eat. It's great for ocean health. It is very good for you. So um, I would call scientists to talk about health um, and nutrition and, you know, kelp nutrition. I would call um, kelp farmers to talk about, you know, how they harvested. Um, and of course, on all of, I was also going to these places and seeing them. But, you know, usually when I do my reported stories, if I go, say, to Maine to talk to kelp farmers and I'm out on a boat, I'm, my note taking, it's a little hard, you know, you're on a boat, yeah. like cold <laughs> wind. So I always call and I do, you know, a lot of interviewing after the fact. So I, I try to, and I try to do all of my testing on one day and my 
phone and my sitting work and my writing and another day just because you know how you get in the groove of something and I'm really bad at dividing things up. I'm bad at doing an hour of this and an hour of that. So I try to keep them separate. And it also just makes more sense on my cooking days because if I have my recipe tester come in, then we work, you know, we are working every second of that day on those recipes. Let me reintroduce you again. We are speaking with Melissa Clark. She's a food writer and cookbook author. She's a staff writer for the New York Times food section, where she writes the weekly column, A Good Appetite. She has a new cookbook titled Dinner in One, Easy and Exceptional One-Pan Meals. She'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies. This is Fresh Air. We're speaking with New York Times food writer and cookbook author Melissa Clark. She writes a weekly column titled A Good Appetite in the New York Times food section. She also produces regular cooking videos. Her latest cookbook is Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. Um, you like to go to restaurants? Do you get ideas there? Oh, yeah. Restaurants are essential. You know, that was part of the thing that was so hard during the pandemic was not going to restaurants and not getting those ideas because chefs think in completely different ways from home cooks. I truly believe that they just their brains just light up in different places. And I love to go to restaurants and see what they're doing. And, and you know, often you'll go to a restaurant and you'll have this amazing plate of food and there'll be, you know, six things on the plate. There'll be the There'll be the, you know, the um, pork filet and there'll be the, the vegetable garnish and the sauce and all of this. And I could take one element of that dish, like just the vegetable garnish or just the sauce and do an entire dish of that from that. Um, like, wow, you know, I, and it's just the way that they combine things in ways that I wouldn't have thought of. So going to restaurants, super important, plus super fun, plus then I don't have to cook. And that's really nice. You say that, that that professional chefs, their brains light up in different ways from home cooks. D different from, from your brain, too? I mean, you've been doing this a definitely. long time. Definitely. Huh, really? Yeah. No, definitely. Um, yeah, you know, the, it's it's a different discipline. I really believe it. And I also think that when chefs, when professional chefs cook at home, I I've, I've heard this from a lot of them. They cook. They really cook differently. I mean, it's a different to, – to be able to go into a restaurant and do food service for, you know, 60 covers, 80 covers, 200 covers is completely different from cooking for a family of four or six or even eight. And the way that you have to think about how to create the meal and how to get the food out, it's just you're flexing different muscles. So for me, when I can see what they do on this large scale in this and usually a slightly more elevated way – but not always. Sometimes, you know, I'm getting ideas from, you know, corner, you know, really simple restaurants, corner restaurants that are just, you know, in my neighborhood because um, I get ideas everywhere. But um, when, you know, when you can just take a moment and um, really think about what you're eating and think about how those flavors go together and not just flavors, but textures and how everything works on a plate and you just can take a few of those elements and bring them into your home cooking. I think home cooks can do this as well. It's just about paying attention. A lot of it is garnishing, you know? I mean, I you know I have this I have this one recipe. It's for this um so this cherry tomato pasta where you soften the cherry tomatoes in oil and you um add a cup of herbs. And when I first published that recipe at NYT Cooking, there were so many comments, a cup of herbs, a cup of herbs, like that just seemed like too much for people. But then you add it and you think, oh, no, actually, this is exactly the right amount and it tastes great. And I got that from restaurants, you know, just again, seeing like, wow, they're using a lot more garnish than I would at home. Um, and they're, you know, and they're mixing it up. They're not just using one type of herb. Maybe they're using like five different kinds. And can I, what can I take from that and, you know, incorporate it into my own recipe? 
Yeah, like the cilantro that we put on that my favorite ginger uh, <laughs> scallion chicken. It's a lot. Yeah, right? It, is it like a it, cup? <laughs> it, it, I forget what this cup or a half cup. It's a lot, and it's it's right. It it really brings it all alive. Um, you know, I, you don't do this anymore, but for a long time you would um, write cookbooks with well-known chefs. Um, what was that like? Oh, I loved writing cookbooks with chefs because here's the thing about chefs. Every single chef does it there differently. You know, like you think, or at least I always thought there was like one technique, you know, like there was one way to, to chop an onion or one way to peel garlic or just like this one way that you would make a sauce. And it turns out that every single chef has their own way of doing it. And they're all different. But the best thing is that they're all right. So learning from chefs, I learned how you know, to cook their food, different techniques. But then I also learned to trust myself because I'm like, well, you know, it works for them. They're, they're all doing it differently. So what, why don't I do the thing that works for me? And then I, and so I've taken that lesson and I've tried to, you know, tell everybody else out there, you know what? Hey, guess what? You may not be a, per, a trained professional chef, but you know what you like to eat and you're doing it your way and people are really liking it. So just keep doing it that way and uh, have confidence. You know, I know that you like to explore cuisine from a lot of different places. Um, do you have to be careful when you do your own take with a traditional recipe? Because, you know, some may be, you know, offended that you're violating a traditional culture or being inauthentic. Um, and I guess, does this happen? Yes. Yeah, yeah well, this has happened. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the pea guacamole story. Yes, I've heard about the pea guacamole. <laughs> tell us about the pea guacamole. Let me tell you about the pea guacamole <laughs> story. So this was not my recipe. This was a recipe I reported on. Um, it was uh, Jean-Georges Van Gerichten's restaurant, um, ABC Cocina at Union Square. And in his kitchen, the recipe, um, they served a pea guacamole. So it was avocados and green peas from the farmer's market, which was you know right by his restaurant at Union Square square. And the thing about the peas in the guacamole, they fix the color so you can do it a little ahead because, you know, guacamole quickly turns brown if you just use avocado, right? But if you put green peas, it really fixes that color. It adds sweetness. It's delicious. It just, you don't really, uh, you don't need to actually texturally, you're not really aware of the peas, but in terms of color and the sweet flavor, I thought it was a great dish. So I reported on his dish, gave the recipe didn't hear anything for a couple of years. And then somebody at the Times tweeted, put peas in your guacamole. Trust us. And that was a problem. <laughs> and then I heard from everybody from the Twitterverse, including President Obama and Jeb Bush. And both of them thought it was a very bad idea to put peas in guacamole. In fact, most people think it's a very bad idea. But I stand by it. I think it is great. Um, I think the problem with that tweet was that it didn't bring in the context of the recipe. It didn't say this is a famous chef who has his spin on a traditional recipe. I mean, it it was a little bit careless. And I think when you are um, when you are changing a beloved recipe and you are adapting it, you need to do it with respect and you need to really think about first of all, why are you doing it? Is there a reason? You need to explain that reason off the top. You need to Tell people what the original dish is, you know, um, so that people don't think you're just um, not aware of what the authentic dish is. And um, if you respect a dish, if you are careful with the way you present it, I do believe that you can make some changes to make it your own as long as you are completely transparent about, you know, I have I have changed this dish and this is why and this is my vision with great respect, <laughs> you know, to the original. A kitchen is a place that everybody in the family uses. Everybody's comfortable there and, you know, spends time there. Your kitchen is also your workplace. 
Do you have rules for your husband and daughter's use of the kitchen? Oh, no, they have rules for me. <laughs> what are they? So, um, well, we, you know, by 6 o'clock, everything needs to be cleaned up, put away, and it, the kitchen needs to become our space again. And it, one of the things that is really important to my husband especially is that he, does, he wants to feel like it's his space too. You know, he doesn't want to feel like he's interrupting us. So that's that's something that is – it's actually been a little bit hard to navigate. Um, but we have the rules. You know, the rules are in place, and they work really well. But as long as I'm done by 6, as long as by 6 o'clock, you know, my assistant is packed up out the door, the kitchen is clean, and then we can have our family time in there. And that's – I mean, and that's – it's important to me too because I want – I mean, I love being in the kitchen. That's where I want to be with my family. I don't want to be reminded that it is just a workplace. I don't want it to be cluttered. I want it to be – a place of peace and calm and amazing food. Wave the wand and it's home again. Um, I, well, spend, spend half an hour cleaning yeah, up clean at it the up minimum. And then wave the wand. <laughs> Make sure everything goes away. Now, now, after a day of cooking, do you want to cook for your family or do others in the family take the apron for a night and cook or what? Well, yeah, and we usually since I've been cooking all day, there's lots of food. There's lots of food, right. <laughs> but, you know, when I'm, when I'm, you know, there are some days when I will do a little cooking in the kitchen and a little bit of writing. And even so, I'll still want to cook at the, at the end of the day. Um, there, you know, and I think especially I, I felt particularly this way during the pandemic, um, the divide between work life and home life, between work and relaxation, like when do you turn it off, right? When do you just say, I am done and I need to stop? And, you know, if you cook all day and then you cook dinner, there has to be, it has, there has to be a divide. So for me, it's like a glass of wine or a cocktail or a piece of music or a, or a sitting down for 10 minutes and just chatting. You know, and we would always sort of figure out, like, what is that thing today? But it was like this ritual. Okay, here we are. It is 6 o'clock, and I am turning off. And how am I going to transition? We are speaking with Melissa Clark. She's a food writer and cookbook author. She's a staff writer for the New York Times food section, and she writes the weekly column, A Good Appetite. Her new cookbook is called Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. We'll continue our conversation after this break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. Let's talk a little bit about your background. I mean, you grew up in Brooklyn, right? Your parents were both psychiatrists, is it right? Um, <laughs> yep, that is when right. When did you begin to think deeply about food and get interested oh, always, in it? Always. It was, you know, food was our family language. And I think there are a lot of families out there who can relate. It's like we were the kind of family that communicated in food. You know, like we'd sit down to breakfast and we'd talk about what to have for dinner. And we'd sit down for dinner one night and we'd talk about what we were going to eat the next night. And if we ever had anything to say to one another, it was always over dinner. You know, food was – it was a, a lubricant. It made it more fun to talk because we were always enjoying a meal together. It made it easier to talk because you could focus on not just the words but the whole experience. It put us at ease. Um you know, and it was, it's funny, it was such a way of communicating that when I met my husband and he would come home from work, um, I would say, what'd you have for lunch? And he would say, um, I'm fine. How was your day, honey? And I was like, and to me, 
to asking him what he had for lunch was me saying, you know, how was your day? How are you? Did you take care of yourself? Did you feed your body? How how are you? Um, but it took me a long time to actually just say, so how was your day? And um, and now he says to me, he'll say, hey, my day was fine. And uh, by the way, I had tuna for lunch. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, you went to Columbia and or uh, you went to Barnard first, right? Um, Barnard, then Columbia, yeah. Then Columbia, and you got an MFA in writing. And I, I gather writing was kind of a career choice apart from food that you knew you wanted to write. And then in at some point you started a catering company. This is a pretty ambitious thing for a young person to do. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it, it wasn't like I wouldn't say it was a catering company, but um, I when I was at um, when I was at Columbia doing my MFA, I noticed that all of the dissertation part, you know, they'd have these dissertation gatherings, these receptions, and all of the professors would get their um, catered food. They'd get these plates from the deli down the street, and I thought, huh. They're, that deli down the street's making an awful lot of money. I could, I could do that. I could make these little, you know, fancy little hors d'oeuvre cheese plates, and I could make that money. Um, and you know, I was fancier than the deli down the street. I mean, I, I, I boiled purple potatoes and cut them in half and put smoked trout mousse on them, <laughs> and it was all fancy. And so I had this little company. Um, Basically, just for Columbia professors, but it was great because I learned a lot. Um, and then I started doing a little bit of private chefing in professors' homes. I started doing small parties in their homes, and then it culminated at a wedding. I did a friend's wedding, and 150 people in Pennsylvania, and I, that was I, that was way out of my league. I, I was not. I was not a professional enough caterer. And I remember we got we made all the food. We got to the wedding site. And there were no tables. There were no prep tables. They assumed we would bring them. I didn't think enough. I hadn't done it before. I didn't know that we were supposed to bring them. And so we had to spread everything out on the floor. It was horrible. I was on my hands and knees making little petty four plates. <laughs> I thought, I'm never doing this again. Uh, were, the, were the couple okay with what? Yeah, I mean, the food happened? was beautiful. It was all fine. I mean, we put down big, you know, we had these, luckily, we had these big um, tons of plastic, you know, tarps. So we, we, it was all fine. We were able, but it was just we were on our hands and knees putting together these plates. It was, and we had some tables. We just didn't have enough tables. Um, how'd you get to the New York Times? You know, isn't it all about being in the right place at the right time? I, um, A friend of mine knew the editor of the... Um, brand new dining in, dining out section. She was uh, his assistant, um, and she helped him write a book that he co-authored with Pierre Frenet, who at that point was a 60-minute gourmet at the Times. And she went on vacation. She gave me her job while she was away. I struck up a friendship with this editor. And a few years later, he called me and he said, you know, we have this little thing, this column called The Food Chain, and are you interested in writing it? And what it was was and this was back in 1997, you know, back before WikiHow. If you wanted to know how to beat egg whites until they were frothy, you know, or until they held stiff peaks, you actually wrote a letter to the Times, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, mailed it. And then I would open this letter and I would I would write the reply and we would publish it. And it was called The Food Chain. And that was actually my first byline. It was about whipping egg whites. And um, I remember my mother was so excited. She saw my name in the Times and she called me up and she goes, did they pay you for that? And I, I was, so I joked with her. I was like, no, mom, I had to send a $25 check to make sure that they spelled my name right. But of course, they did pay me. I mean, it was just kidding her. But it was like this, you know, this that was my first New York Times byline. And I just hung around. I just, I, I wouldn't leave. Every time they asked me to do something, I said yes, no matter what. And uh, eventually, um, 
I started freelancing for them quite regularly. And then in 2007, I started the column. Um, Pete Wells was the editor, actually. Before he was the critic, he was the editor of the section, and he asked me to start the column. And so that's when A Good Appetite started. You know, it's interesting. You know, I began your introduction by saying how in our house we've realized that Melissa Clark recipes are good and other people see them too. You know, it's funny because you like people who serve you a good meal. You inspire a lot of other people to serve their friends and family good meals. And this is in the, you know, maybe millions of people for you by now. That must feel kind of cool. It's my, my favorite thing is when someone says, I made your X recipe and it was delicious, but I changed 50 things of it. That is what I love to hear. I love people who take my recipes and change them and just, you know, make it their own. To me, that's the best because I know that I've, I'm not inspired, just inspiring someone to cook, but I'm inspiring someone to play with a recipe. You know, because I don't know. I mean, it's like I know what I like and I make recipes for the foods I like, but people like different things. You know, you're you're an omnivore. You eat all kinds of stuff. But, you know, you're eating less meat. This book, you know, half of the recipes are meatless. Are there kind of ways you're kind of trying to nudge Americans in terms of diet and nutrition? Yes. I have. A, I actually have a whole – it's not very secret, but I, I, I have an agenda. I want people to eat less meat. I want people to enjoy the meat that they're eating more and focus on it. I think that when we eat meat, we need to pay attention and we need to – enjoy every bite of it and not take it for granted because it is a precious resource. Plus, I think vegetables, I mean, I love vegetables. I am happy when I'm eating more of them. I think I feel better when I eat more of them. So for our, our, our health, I want people to eat more vegetables. For our planet, I want people to eat less meat and more vegetables. And um, and I also think it's it's one of the most delicious ways to eat. So this is what I'm pushing. I'm also trying to get people to eat um, sustainable things that they don't necessarily think that they like, like shellfish. Some of the most sustainable ocean food that you can eat is shellfish. Mussels, clams, oysters. People can be intimidated. They think that they're hard to make. And I'm trying to get people to eat more of them and to make it friendly and maybe eat fewer species that are endangered. So this is just, you know, I mean, and the way I can do that is I can write recipes that help people get there. Melissa Clark, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Melissa Clark is a staff writer for the New York Times Food section, where she writes the weekly column, A Good Appetite, and produces cooking videos. Her latest cookbook is Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. I like to stroll on the Costa del Sol at sunrise. And to me, Wacky Key is the place to be speaking fun-wise. I like to dine in a Florentine palazzo. You can laugh and call me fatso. That's okay by me. I like to stick with the first-class ticket buyers. Setting trends with my trend-setting friends, the frequent flyers. I like to shop on the Champs-Élysées, eat curry in Old Bombay, and spend New Year's Eve in either Tel Aviv or Rome. But if it's all the same to you, let's eat home.
That's the late Dave Frischberg from his album, Let's Eat Home. Coming up, John Powers reviews RRR, the wildly popular Indian film he calls an epic action bromance. This is Fresh Air. RRR is an epic action movie from India that opened in the U.S. in March and then moved on to Netflix. Over the months since the film ended its first run, it's become a phenomenon, with special theatrical screenings filled with legions of fans who bring friends to see it, who in turn tell their friends to see it. Our critic at large, John Power, says RRR isn't just enormously enjoyable, it offers the primal pleasures of moviegoing. If you're over the age of, say, 40, you will surely remember the 1975 cult phenomenon, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Weekend after weekend, year after year, decade after decade, audiences turned up at theaters, often dressed in corsets, fishnets, and other costumes, to shriek out lines ahead of the characters and sing along with the songs. I've never seen anything like it, until now. A few nights ago, I went to a packed screening of RRR, an epic action bromance from India that had 900 people, some of whom had already seen it ten times, whooping and clapping and dancing from the opening credits. Made by box office titan S.S. Rajamuli, RRR induces such unabashed giddiness in its audience that Hollywood is witnessing a push to get it nominated for the Oscars. Forget best foreign language film. Folks are talking best picture, best director, best actor. And having seen RRR twice myself, I'm part of the bandwagon. Set during the British Raj in the 1920s, the movie tells the story of two heroes with sight-of-beef physiques and supercharged abilities. The tightly wound Ram works for the British as a crack military officer who we see quash a mass Indian uprising single-handed. His tiger-hunting counterpart, Beam, is a tribal villager who's come in disguise to Delhi to reclaim a young girl from his village who's been capriciously snatched by the evil wife of the evil British governor. Ram and Beam meet heroically while working in tandem to save a child from a train crashing into a river. Kindred in their bravery, they instantly become fast friends. But they don't know one important thing. While Beam secretly opposes the governor, Ram is secretly working for him. They're bound for a head-on collision. RRR, the title stands for Rise, Roar, Revolt, is populist filmmaking. Its emotions are simple. Its anti-colonial politics broad. Rajamuli makes the British rulers of India even worse than they actually were. And they were mighty bad. But his megastar lead actors play their roles with such ardent conviction that we don't merely believe in Ram and Beam's friendship. We're moved by it. Rajamuli unfolds the many twists and turns of their story with such confidently rampaging energy that, by comparison, most Hollywood blockbusters feel anemic. I'm normally bored by action sequences, but from the opening riot to the assault on the governor's mansion to the big prison escape, during which Ram rides atop Beam's shoulders with guns a-blazing, RRR contains more exciting action scenes than all the Marvel movies put together. Indeed, there's a slow-motion shot right before the intermission that's one of the most jaw-dropping moments in the history of cinema. Just as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and The Matrix offered American viewers a new vision of action, so RRR possesses a delirious inventiveness and originality that makes the audience go bananas. And I haven't even mentioned the marvelous Natu Natu song and dance sequence, 
that recalls the dance-off between the Jets and the Sharks in West Side Story, but is vastly more alive. You can currently see RRR on Netflix, and it's a good enough movie that you'll enjoy it. But if you can, and I'd urge local theaters to bring it back, you should see it on a big screen. For two reasons. First, Rajamuli is in love with the sheer bigness that makes movies so much grander than TV. Bursting with fights, rescues, wild animals, surging crowds, sadistic monsters, larger-than-life showdowns, and mythic transformations, RRR is not a movie that leaves you asking for more. Indeed, in these days when the box office is way down, movie chains are wobbling, and experts wonder whether the movies will even survive, RRR makes the case for returning to theaters. It reminds us that movies are always more thrilling when they're part of a collective experience, when you can share the excitement with the people around you. That excitement is electric when you watch RRR. You may well leave the theater humming the catchy tune, Natu Natu. John Powers reviewed RRR, available on Netflix and playing in some theaters. On tomorrow's show, we explore the origins and peculiar nature of money with Jacob Goldstein, former co-host of NPR's Planet Money. Goldstein talks about the history of currency, how we came to trust bills printed by the government as legal tender, and how we've managed and mismanaged the money supply, most notably in the Great Depression. His book is Money the true story of a made-up thing. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Mm-hmm.